Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with relational therapist John Sykes. Since 1986, John has worked to build on the strengths of individual families and communities He uses skills and talents gained while working in direct services and executive leadership roles in the nonprofit arena. Sykes is a play therapist and works with children and adolescents impacted by neglect and abuse. He works to create safety in the therapeutic environment. John earned his bachelor's degree in youth service administration from Northeastern Illinois University and his master's degree in clinical social work from Loyola University, Chicago, an adjunct lecturer at University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration. He has also lectured at the Jane Addams School of Social Work at the University of Illinois, Chicago. The Chicago social figure and high sought after therapist launched his website, According to Sykes, in 2013. In 2017, he was recognized at the annual Esteem Awards with the Outstanding Service Male Award. On receiving this prestigious award, John said he believed that being a participant in helping a community in peril and in need of so much healing is essential. Respect, love, and inclusion are our birthrights. John, I want to welcome you to Collections, Michelle by Michelle Brown. I'm so happy to have you as a guest. How are you today? You know, I'm doing great, and I want to thank you for asking me to be a part of your show. I'm pretty honored. Oh, well, that's very great. Well, you know, you came, I mean, Phil Esteem said, you know, as he was going through people who were going to get the Esteem Awards, how you stood out to him. Um, Is Chicago your home? It is. I'm born and raised on the south side of Chicago. Oh, wow. That's great. That's great. And I see that everywhere you went to school was right there in Illinois. Uh, it is. You know, mm-hmm. I, always tell, your... I, always, I always tell the joke that I, I kind of got stuck here in Chicago one opportunity after the other. It's, really, it's been really um, a blessed life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know that you, so you said Southside, you grew up there. Did you always know that this was the field you wanted to go into? You know, absolutely not. When I was working, I've been working in nonprofit administration for about 30-something years, and I was working actually in human resources at the time, and I started volunteering at a youth shelter, and I had no idea there was something called homeless youth. And I would Mm. go there on the weekend. I would go there on the weekends, and I would form groups and 
I would volunteer, and I'd say, wow, I need to do this. This is something I really want to do because the kids I'd be sought after. The kids would be looking for me. They'd like my groups. You know, they would like the one-on-one time I would spend with them. I just didn't have the clinical training, and I said, wow, most of us are pretty innate clinicians. We just need the skills to go and, you know, and perform it in a more formalized way. So I did um, go back and get my master's, and then I started working in the field doing direct service. Mm. Were people who knew you from uh, the other things you've done, were they surprised, or did they see that as a natural progression? Like you said, the kids like to be around you, like they like talking to you. So did they just sort of see that as a natural progression that when you said, I'm going back to school to do this, did they go, of course you are, or were they just like shocked? You know, those are really interesting because I always say that we have these sort of, you know, breaks in our lives where things sort of make a change for us, you know, sort of, I think you talk about it as sort of intersectionality. And I think it was a period when I was like, okay, I'm starting to do a lot of self-reflection, a lot of healing on my own. I was born and raised in Chicago in the Alvey Projects called Alvey Gardens for the first 17 years of my life. Very poor, very impoverished community, very isolated community. And so from that, there was a lot of, you know, historical traumas and things that happened for people who grew up in sort of poverty-stricken communities. So I always knew that there was a part of me that wanted to heal, and I think I did a lot of that in my early 30s right prior to going back to school. It just seems like it was just a journey and an evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, it said how you said, like, you got in Chicago, you just never left. And, I mean, like you said, it's an evolution. And even as you started working with nonprofits, you went back to school. And I think that particularly lately, Chicago has gotten like a really bad rap. Yes, it has problems. Yes, it has things to do with. But um, it just seems like it's been getting like a particularly bad rap. Have you ever said, you know, maybe I should look for greener pastures? Or is it like, is this your home and, you know, I'm sticking with it. You know, I go back and forth on that. You know, I feel like, you know, after being in the field for 30 years and been doing direct service for 20, I feel like I want to do less. So I do, you know, do my practice and I do three days a week. But I've made such a name for myself here. I am supposed to be here to help with the challenges and be a vehicle for change for the community. That's really clear. Every time I think or or get offered to do something somewhere else, something falls down that I just can't even resist. My introduction to teaching was the opportunity to design a course that works specifically for vulnerable populations, particularly minorities. Um, so it was a really great opportunity to be able to do that and to be able to implement that as well. So I was like, UFC calls you, you know, you can't give up that opportunity, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was always well, you- like some, some profound things. Thank you. Well, being at University of Chicago, now I have friends who like I'd say like back in the 90s, went to the University of Chicago, and they were African-American, and they said, you know, how challenging it was because it was like you always had to be on because they always knew your name, you know, and, and, and there weren't that many. And now here you are, an adjunct lecturer. What do you mm-hmm. see has happened, changed in that campus as it relates to communities of color, and how is it for you? I mean, were you like, wow, they want me to come here, and how does it, how does it feel working there? Well, you know, I, feel, you know, I tell you, you know, um, 
is number two in social work in the country. Depends on who you ask, you might be number one. They kind of battle between those two. So it's a really good reputation for being a really good premier social work school. So I do think they have a long way to go. I think there is a number of people of color, some even women uh, and other minority groups that are, in, are doing adjunct work. But what I think the university was smart at is really figuring out they needed people who are not just theory and not just sort of research people, but people who are actually practicing in the field. And so they sought after people who they had worked with in the community. I met people from the university while working in the community, and they asked me to come and present and do a class based on working with minority populations. I just think it's just being, uh, being available, being accessible, and being a part of the community really, uh, really sort of pulled me into that sort of opportunity. I do think they still have a lot of work to go in that area. Well, I imagine, especially, I mean, like you said, you grew up on the south side, and I have friends who grew up on the south side, and let's face it, University of Chicago sits right over there, but they didn't really feel that as part of, you know, the neighborhood. I mean, it's on the south side, but no, it really wasn't, you know. And, I mean, you grew up all around there, and now here you are. Yeah. I feel really blessed, you know what I'm saying? And they're very good to me. Mm-hmm. They've been very good to me. So I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So now you said that. I guess I'm really curious about the name of your site, According to Sykes. What, what is that? How did you develop that name, and what do you mean by that? That's really funny that when I saw that question, you know, people ask me that all the time. My good friend Maria would not be happy about receiving the credit for this, but she came up with the name. She said, it just makes sense, giving who you are, what you do, how you do things. So I just went with it because, you know, mm. I was just, because it, it felt sort of um, um, arrogant a bit when, when I heard it. I said, oh, I don't want, I got to find something like, you know, the healing hand or something. And I was like, no, people come directly to you because you give good advice, you have good relationships. So it would be like according to Jim, according to Psych, you know. So I thought I just went with it. Well, you know, that's what I thought too. When I first thought of it, I said, you know, like this man must have some really profound things to say because I'm thinking like, you know, there's the gospel according to this and that. So it's so like, oh, so there's a gospel according to Psych. When he comes in and he tells you, you know, you better listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was really kind of. It was funny, Michelle, how that came about. I was like, I wish I had some bigger story, but that was kind of what it was. I was going back and forth mm-hmm. trying to figure out the name of the website. Should it be john.com? And she's like, no, according to Sykes. I thought it was really funny. Mm-hmm. So you went from, okay, so you were in the nonprofit sector, and then you started to do this. When you decided to develop your own practice, what was your well, focus? I know what I know what your tagline is, but what was your focus in doing this? Well, you know, if I, if I back up, you know, being a, being a nonprofit since the '80s, I had really built myself up administratively. So I had mm-hmm. really high profile jobs, but I was also getting a master's degree and was also allowed to do direct service on every job I had. So I was always able to negotiate doing direct practice because that's really what I enjoyed doing. So ever since I graduated, I was always honing in on my skills. I took a pay cut and went and worked as a clinician. I was a home-based therapist. I did court um, reconc- uh, reunification work with DCFS uh, families. 
I really found such passion and such um, richness in doing that work, but also realizing the importance of taking care of self. And as, long as, and as much as I do that, um, I always have more um, energy to do what I need to do. But I really, really like to direct service piece. And so I always knew that at some point I was going to branch off and have a practice where people of all different ethnicities and diversity could come. Uh, my background, particularly as people working who have been impacted by abuse and neglect, people who have had maybe multiple adverse childhood experiences between 0 and 18, that sort of changes their way of, of functioning. And so I work with a lot mm-hmm. of people impacted by trauma survivors. Now, you know, and, and digging and looking at it, I mean, when you kicked off your website, it looked like it was quite the event. And there was someone that was like, who was like, teasing, joking, I was talking about like his thing like to you was like, well, what were you going to wear? <laughs> and uh, and, it, and, they, and that's where they were saying that you were like this, this sought after social person. How have you mixed the social and the professional? Well, I'm, you know, I'm an agency person. I grew up working in social services since the 80s. And so we know the importance of working in the community. And, you know, and being in private practice, it can be pretty isolating. So I attacked myself with the Black Men's Caucus, you know, some of the um, Equality Illinois, you know, one of my friends is launching a shelter in North Lawndale. So I really tried to, I, I just made a lot of co- colleagues and friends over the years, and, I, and they call upon me to be a part of things. Um, I can just be, I mean, I can sit in a room and someone can ask me a question and I can just start shooting off. Most of the time people just pull out a piece of paper and start writing stuff down. <laughs> I don't know. I just mm-hmm. that's one of those friends like to just help people figure it out, mm-hmm. and and try to get people to do it, Michelle, in a way that doesn't have to be so stressful. You know, life. This is life. When you're in life, life happens. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, "I'm just worried something's going to happen." I'm saying it is, but you have to be equipped and resilient and ready to be able to handle whatever comes your way, because life will come your way. And well, so you know, I, I like. Remember. Yes. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. No, I mean, I know, I've said, and I think there's that thing about you because when you received your award, like you didn't come up with a, like like this huge, you know, speech and and that, but it was it was something that was like really like it was it was like you know, don't it's give fine. up, let's keep doing it. I mean, I thought it was just like. It wasn't, you know, I've seen, I've been to a number of those wards, and it was just, like, very refreshing in a way. You also looked like you came to have a good time. I did, and, my, and I had a lot of friends there with me, so that was really wonderful. I was so pleased by that. And, you know, I tend to be pretty, my friends said to be pretty skilled in a matter of fact, um, how you can be both of those. But I try to just bring things down. I don't need a lot of jargon. I don't pathologize people. You know, I know how to do that. I'm very skilled diagnostically because I've been doing it for a long time. But I don't use that in the room with people. Because there's really nothing wrong with people. Sometimes it's what happened to them. It's a very paradigm shift. And so when life happens to us, sometimes we just need someone to help us figure out how to bounce back. And that's really what it's about. It's really not about needing mental health services. It's about being able to benefit. And so I think that stigma is getting better with somebody like myself, having people that look like them to come and see so 
You know, I was thinking as I was reading over the notes, and I know that they said that you do play therapy. And I have to tell you, I got a new bike today. And, I mean, I went and picked up the bike at Target, and I rode my bike through Target feeling like a kid. And everybody walked and looked at me. And, and then I got outside, and I rode that bike. And it, was, it made me think about how much fun it is sometimes just in life to be playful and do that. What exactly is play therapy? Remember that kids don't have the same language that we have to tell us how they're feeling. So what they do is they act out things through the metaphor of the play. And through the metaphor of the play, you can help them have a corrective experience. They might be aggressive. I might use a sand tray and have them sort of reenact something. I may use a dollhouse. I may even use two dollhouses if their kids are in a divorce situation. Tell me what happens at mom's house and tell me what happens at dad's house. What would you like to see change? A lot of times kids don't have, they don't have language. Like we can sit and say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sad. So the play therapy is really a, really some wonderful techniques to do assessment, to treat, and to help uh, young people and even adults cope. I even do play therapy with families. Hmm. Well, I could, you know, like I said, I was thinking about it, and I could see that. You know, like if it's something that you're not able to verbalize, to go into that way, to, to sort of like, help you let your guard down, you know, to have that, that to feel okay like that. Um, what made you decide to use that means of working particularly with, with I know I understand about that, but like you said, how sometimes you even bring that into families. How does that, you know, I can see what will work with the children, but what happens when you come to the family and you say, you know, we're going to enact We're play a game. Mm-hmm. We're going to play a game. So here's the deal. Even even remember that I work with a lot of people in, impacted by trauma. And a lot of times people have experienced things that they don't even know what's, what's trauma. And trauma survivors, they don't have memories. They have symptoms. So usually things show up in your body first. Like you may be feeling, why am I feeling, why am I moved so bad today? But because you haven't connected the thoughts to it. Oh, it's June. It's the month my mom died. So sometimes your body will keep the score before your, your mind will. So I like to get people up and moving. But I might have everybody, I might do a role exercise where I put a lot of different descriptions of family roles and have them pick which role they are and talk about which role they like and which role they don't like and, you know, really getting them to kind of talk about what happens at home in a way that's more playful and more expressive. Mm. Do you ever get that look like what you're talking about, Willis? You know, you want me to do what? (laughs) Well, I think... One of the things I have to remind people is that, first of all, nobody gets to deauthorize me. I've been doing this too long. I know it works. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if you, want, you want to come, you can come. There's always people. I have, I, you know, Michelle, I usually have a waiting list for services. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you have to be ready. So I had a couple came to see me last week, and I said, how did you get here? They named the family that brought them there, and I said, did they tell you about me? And they said, yep, because we don't ha- I don't have time to – you know, I don't, I don't have the luxury of that in a private practice to kind of work with resistance at that level. You know, mm-hmm. if, I had a, if I had an agency with a lot of people, I could deal with somebody really not wanting to be there and missing appointments. But I don't have the luxury of that because I only have so many appointments. So I really sit down with people and say, you really, I need you to always buy into the, um, into the session. But you also have to be brave enough to evaluate your session at the end by asking your, your, your client, how was that? Was it too much of this, not enough of that? Would you like next session to be um, something different? Would you like a different therapist? I mean, I think you have to be able to let people know that it's not always about 
therapy, sometimes they had to get the, the right fix. I mean, if your car mm-hmm. breaks down, you get a bad mechanic, you won't stop getting it fixed. You'll just keep finding it, keep going until you find the right mechanic. You know, so, so it's like mm-hmm. finding your support system is always the right thing to do because, you know, we don't use those, uh, we don't access those services in the way we need to. A lot of times we don't even know we have those services available. I mean, to I us. think. Mm-hmm. I think that that's good too. That you know. They're referred, they know what they're getting into. And I think, I'm, like you said, you're doing this, but they also have to, like you said, be brave, be committed to yep. trying this. And, you know, I mean, because therapy is, uh, we had talked briefly about it, and we're going to talk more about it, but therapy, particularly in the African-American community, you know, many people have gone through that thing where you just sort of tough it out or that's just the way it is. And I often talk to people and, and you know, and, I'll, and they're all like, oh, well, you know, I'd never go and do that. And I said, you know, um, I'll tell them, like I had in the course of 10 years, I had both of my parents and two other elders who I was taking care of die. I said, I went and talked to somebody. And they were like, yeah. you did? And wow. I said, Yeah. Yeah, I said, you you have to go and be prepared to do that. And like you said, you don't always go to the first. The first one might not have worked out, but I found someone that I could talk to. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really important that we continue to get rid of the stigma. You know, we have people, I was working on a committee in in West London, North Lawndale a couple of years ago. And they kept wanting to change the word mental health. We need to call it something else. The kids won't come if it's called mental health. And I was like, you guys stay in your lane. I'm in charge of the mental component. We're going to call it mental health, and the kids are going to come. And that's exactly what happened. Because it's Mm -hmm. not about what we call it. It's about how you present it in a way that's engaging to them. You know, a lot of people... People call me on the first appointment. I said, I don't, I, don't, I don't schedule consultations. You come in, we can have a discussion and see if it's a good fit for both of us. We'll sit down and talk. I'll tell you about the process. I'll tell you what you can expect and what you can't expect and so what, the, what the boundaries are, and then we can shake hands and decide what we're going to do at the end of that first appointment. You know, I think that that's the thing that, too, like, and, and we talk about that, the stigma, but also when they say, oh, you can't call it mental health. You know, if your body isn't working right. You do right. something to take care of that health. You know, so it's not, you know, it's not saying that there's a disease. It's like taking care of that other part of you. And often, you know, like you said, your body doesn't forget. If you haven't taken care of that part with the grief, like you said, uh, with the person where come June, why do I feel yep. this way? It's because you didn't deal with that. Right. Because you're having a sort of an anniversary action that you didn't really honor and, you know, and witness, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of times people have gone through so many bad things and no one has even witnessed their, you know, witnessed their trauma. Mm-hmm. They just go on like nothing never happened. You know, that's kind of what we do, particularly a lot of people in our community. And then we get sort of bound by sort of, you know, intergenerational um, behaviors and substance abuse and uh, un- un- unresolved mental health issues. Do you find that sometimes, 
when someone comes in, because, I mean, even though, like, you know, the people will, will recognize that they need to come in, but then there's still that part, like uh, another part of that stigma is like, oh, well, you know, you don't talk about family. You know, we, we keep this inside, but sometimes, like, you have to peel back those layers. And do you find yeah. that even though they're committed to doing this, that sometimes that, that ghost in the closet is still sort of sitting there wanting to hold them back? Well, I think it's really about having necessary tools and necessary assessments in your office that they can complete to kind of get them to sort of talk a little bit about that. You know, it's, remember, therapy is almost like you could drive in your car. You know, it's like this braking and accelerating that happens. So you have to know when to accelerate and ask questions and when to pull back. You know, it's, it's the training, it's in the training to kind of recognize certain body language, certain words, certain um, things that a client might say, you know, head movement. Sometimes they might drop their head when you ask them a question. So let you know that they're not ready to give you that information yet. It's really not about holding back, but it's you just being the container until they're able to hold certain certain um, things that happened into their happened in their lives. So I think after, you know, after being a pretty savvy therapist, you kind of can kind of know when someone's not giving you the whole story. Or I just really assume that they may not just be ready. And I do think that remember, people got hurt in the context of a relationship, so they're not going to trust the therapist, therapeutic relationship. You know, so I think it, that takes time. You have to be you have to be prepared for that rupture and that sometimes they may not tell you stuff initially. And you just kind of, I talk about that at the beginning. You know, and I even tell my clients don't want to come. If you don't want to come, you have to come and talk about why you don't want to come. You know, mm. because if that's the fact you made, then we need to talk about that. Um, but one of the things that, I, you know, you asked me earlier about my practice, and I don't know why this is, and maybe I could, you know, think about this more, but my, my practice in the last three years has shifted to about 80% men. Mm. Maybe between the between the ages of 14 and maybe about 55. And they range from every ethnicity, from Indian to Chinese to African-American to, you know, gay, straight, um, correctional officers, all kinds of um, different types of people. So it's been really interesting to see that evolution, maybe being out there and people mm-hmm. can see that I'm available. That's been really a shift, and I think that's a really good for our community that men of color and men are thinking about it differently. Mhm. Mhm. Well, we're going to take a short break in our conversation, and um, we'll be right back. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm talking with John Sykes. He's a relational therapist from Chicago. His website is According to Sykes. You're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown, and we will be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
we're back with more conversation with today's guest, John Sykes. John, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about men. And, you know, right now we live in crazy times. I mean, just like really stressful times. And I think that, you know, I mean, I mean, to, to say it, to say it, you know, an understatement. And particularly for men, I think that, you know, young men, I mean, there's so many things like, you know, that they're dealing with young men of color. I mean, often I talk to young men of color who are also members of the LGBTQ community, and I can only imagine the stress they have to feel knowing that, you know, on so many levels you've got this target on your back, you know, if you get pulled over, it can it can go drastically bad real quick. Really quickly, you're so right okay. about that. You, you know, know, I, I think, know. Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to do, and you know, and there's some really great um, organizations, particularly um, Trinity United Church of God, that put out some really good visuals and really good educational materials to help talk to youth about what to do when they're stopped by the police or things like that. But the other, the community violence piece has really been a challenge because I think that's a problem for all youth, you know, and we now have this issue of cyberbullying and, you know, you know, all this revenge porn and, you know, kids are more, um, you know, suicide packs online. I mean, we have a lot of more issues to deal with in terms of just, you know, you know, sort of the social norms. Now we have to deal with the cyber stuff. But men are, are particularly harder to, work with because they're not socialized to be vulnerable. And so a lot of times from the beginning of my work is to really help them to figure out how to be more vulnerable in spaces where, particularly in my office, where they can kind of talk about their fears and, you know, and their worries and not feeling successful as a professional and dealing with that instead of going down an affair. Mm. So yeah, I, I mean, in, uh-huh. you know, that's you're not feeling good about yourself, you're going to go and try to seek immediate gratification either through some other relationship, through, you know, spending money or gambling or doing something to get that sort of endorphin when you really need to just kind of sit with with the feelings of whatever you're feeling. But men aren't taught to do that. And then there's all these, like, mixed messages where you may in one way feel successful, but then when you're assaulted by these images in the media and everything where you question, you know, are you successful? Ways of questioning your masculinity and your sexuality, where all of these things can come under. And when you have young men, and it does affect everything because you understand that often young men get their ideals and think that they're, they say, well, if we were raised in a single parent home with just a mother, that too impacts how they feel about being men. Yeah. So, you know, I would be, re- I would be remiss if I didn't mention a study that I think anybody could look at and really get a really capture and really sort of encapsulate what happens to people who live in, a, in an environment where they just have a lot of experiences that are sort of harmful. And it's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's probably one of the longest longitudinal studies ever done. But what they were able to do was to look at seven or t- ten life experiences and connect them to developmental problems, 
and, and, and subsequently health challenges that led to that. Each person who had had at least three or more adverse childhood experiences on this list died 10 years earlier than the average person. So what they're showing is when people have these experiences, they really need to get support around them so they can kind of change that around. You know, you grow up in an environment where there's a, you know, your mom is being incarcerated and the house is on substances. You're not getting the, you're not getting the development you need to get at home, and you're certainly not present for school because you don't have proper nutrition and all those other things, so you're going to be lagging behind. That tends to lead to sort of more social problems and more behavioral problems, and then sometimes you get hooked up into the system. And so it becomes this sort of snowball when you're, not, when you're sort of abused and neglected as a child. And the more of those that occur, the more likely you are to get some, to, to deal with sort of, um, sort of survival skills that are not probably in your best interest. I'll just say that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I don't think it's maladaptive or negative behaviors. I think think behaviors are, are an attempt to protect us, but they just fail us because they, they you know, you pick survival skills based on very archaic survival skills, and so I think sometimes we have to help people figure out the different survival skills. You know? Do you think that, you know, mental health? I mean, like to me, it's like something that most people are introduced to it in a crisis. But you don't necessarily have to be in a crisis. How do we, you know, and I know like in schools, if they have someone who's there, often their job is just like to monitor, make sure you go to school, but not that part of talking about it. How do we get then to the point where in our families, even in our children, to where they recognize that if you're not feeling all right, that you have to take care of, that mental health, you know, you don't have to be in crisis, you don't have to, Johnny doesn't have to be a bad boy, but maybe this is something that we introduce into just growing up. You know, it's really interesting. If I have um, young people who are in the, between the ages of like 12 and maybe 17 right now, and I used to have a 19-year-old, and I still have kids who, when they come home from college, they call, they call me and say, can I get a session in? Because I want to talk to you about how the semester went. They do a boosted session. I really think it's about the way you engage people in the process and bringing them into the process. The first thing I let them know is nothing you tell me is leaving the room. If you think or if you hear about something I told, then you don't have to come here anymore. But as long, mm. as, we're, as, long as I'm maintaining confidentiality and you have a safe space to talk and it doesn't leave the room, you're required to show up and continue to do this. And I think they always call it, they'll call me. People find that their parents find it strange that, one, they won't talk to them, but they'll ask to talk to me. That's normal. That's the way normal development works. You're beginning, you're beginning to move away from your parents and you're moving towards your peers, but you still need someone that they can connect to. That's why mentoring was always so effective. So it's really almost like a mentoring sort of whatever role you know, clients want to use the, the, the session for, I really kind of lean that to them. If they want to use it to d- develop skills, to do psychodynamic treatment, to talk about sort of unconscious stuff, we can do interventions around cognitive behavioral therapy. It really just depends on the client, the way they think. But a lot of times, Michelle, I'll ask them, do you want to do writing in here? Do you want to do homework? I mean, have, mm-hmm. I, have a, I, have a, I have a thousand techniques in my, in, in my back pocket. So it's really depending on the person's literacy, can they read, whether they're, um, you know, sort of their linguistic issues, if this is their first or second language, 
You know, so depending on where they are, I'll use different skills and techniques to get them involved. So I usually get people to, you know, um, you know, rarely do people miss their appointments. You know, I think of it, you know, always trying to engage them in. And if I don't feel like it's going anywhere, I'll say it. I'll say, you know, what do you think is going on? You know, I take my job seriously. I want to help you. I have to work myself out of a job, you know. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we have to get someplace. And if I'm, going, if I'm sitting in front of you every day and, you know, we have to talk about that, whatever that might be that's getting in the way. You know, I like to how you talk about making a safe space because if you don't feel safe, you know, you're not going to open any doors, you know. Did you see some of that, you know, how you said before you went back to school and you were working with young people, did you see that that was really important? Because, I mean, often I, you know, I've seen young people, and that's it. Where's that safe space? So did you a lot of the things that you brought into your practice, the things about the safe space, even like the the play therapy, were those things that you observed before, you know, you got the piece of paper to go with what you were already learning? Um, it, so, did, did you see that? Yeah, so, you know, even, you know, even in my early days of working in social services, Michelle, we've always talked about when we worked with domestic violence, coming up with a safety plan for the family. So that's always been sort of a fundamental tenet of social work. When there's violence in the family or someone that's going to be possibly harmed, you do kind of a safety plan, like you do different routes and, you know, help, find, help them um, hide paperwork or whatever they might need to do to abruptly leave a, a crisis situation. So you do that kind of safety planning. But in the context of therapy, you are not going to get anywhere with a client if they don't feel psychologically, socially, physically, morally safe in the room. If you cannot get around those issues, nothing's going to happen. People have to know the difference between I am safe and I feel safe. If you always feel like, you know, people are out to get you or if you're on edge or you don't feel like you have the skills to talk in meetings, you're never going to be safe. So you start very slowly and help people feel safe and secure in their own bodies before you even move forward. In their bodies, in the room, you know, are there people around who trust their morals? Do you think an LGBT youth is morally safe? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. No, mm-hmm. you have to find an environment for them, you know. Do you feel like, you know, you feel like a woman police officer is safe, you know? No. Or correction officer, they deal with a lot of different things. So as you get to help them figure out how to live or how to survive in certain situations, you know, that they can and, and change the ones they can, you know. Yeah, because often when they come in and you've established this place and you're talking to them, but then they have to go back out into that unsafe world. So how do they take that with them, that armor with them? Well, you know, one of the things we work hard on, if we work on, um, you know, sort of teaching them coping skills, like how to deal with stress, a lot of times they don't have that. Like you and I may go out into the world and deal with racism or homophobia or, you know, sexism or whatever that might be or classism or whatever that might be, and you and I know how to deal with it and, 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 and counter on it on intellectual level. But when some people have been deprived or may not have the sort of internal resources to do that, they'll fall apart. And so in the therapy, I might teach them, like, deep breathing techniques, grounding techniques, different skills to use when they're feeling sort of overwhelmed or flooded by what someone's saying to them or what's happening around them. You know, also teaching them how to figure out how to keep themselves safe, 
you know, if possible, you know, also doing a plan to think about ways to keep them physically safe. You know, can you call somebody at the school that can walk them home? You know, we have kids who go through gang territories, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a really it's a really interesting to get them to buddy up with each other, or, you know, leave later, you know, things that we try to do that's come up with safety plans uh, all over the map, you know. Well, for now me, you... safety is a, is a big mm-hmm. deal, and it's a big part. It's a big part of the treatment. In fact, it's part. It's sometimes the only thing I might do with someone who who has a really hard time just like managing every day because they're just so anxious or so depressed. And so, what I'll do is I'll teach them stabilization, safety, and stabilization skills, and 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 they'll be fine. You know, in your in your travels throughout Chicago. Do you find that in communities, in schools, even in in governmental and institutional structures, are people recognizing that this part has to go into, like, you know, everybody can talk about put more police out there on the street. That doesn't necessarily mean safety. Do you find anyone, do you find that in these, these various venues there are people talking about how, this world we live in, how this community we live in, how this city that these kids are living in, how do we address not just what can happen to their bodies, but what's happening in their heads? Right. You know, Michelle, we're living in the most unprecedented times ever. And we lived in a state where we didn't have a budget for three years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're on teacher salaries and unions are being collapsed and you know, insurance is in jeopardy. And, you know, we live in a, in a world, you know, where that is the, is the norm and agencies are closing here in Illinois. And, you know, people don't have the resources to see the families that they want to see. So when you're talking about change, a lot of the times the systems are just as traumatized and wounded as the clients. And so I think it's, it, it needs to be more of a circular process where, you know, places worked on, okay, what kind of resources do we need? What are we working against? But I think there's some good will people. I just don't think they have the resources to do a lot of what they need to do. And I don't think it should take much, but it would be a paradigm shift and probably some training. You know, rules are just so punitive because they were handed down that way. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to change rules when they've just been so punitive for so long. You know, there's only, like, like you said, like you have, you have your private practice. There's so many people that you can see that you can do this. But how do you, I, I, you have to, I know that, like I heard you at the Esteem Awards, but how do you find that as you are you're interacting with other professionals, do you see something forming? Do you see like a critical mass where pretty soon people are going to come and sort of say, we need to put more dollars. I mean, I, I didn't you just finally get a budget in the state area? I mean, are there people watching those things? Yes. I would encourage every listener who is interested in working in any kind of a system to Google the word trauma-informed care. And that will tell you everything you need to know about how to create a safe space, no matter where you work. Because one of the fundamental um, tenets or of the trauma-informed care is that everybody has the same language, the janitor and the executive director. We, we talk, we use the same language around clients. We have the same language about how we treat each other. There is inclusion in everything. So if the staff feels safe and it's a safe environment, obviously the clients are going to feel safe in a safe environment. So it's a great model because it teaches there's an assessment. 
you can uh, add or change your policies to reflect ways to keep clients safe and you know not having information hanging in your waiting room that they can't read. You know, you're walking to a waiting room and you see all this jargon on the wall. It's like, really? Mm-hmm, <laughs> that would mm-hmm. be the okay, and it's not. So maybe even little things like that, or you go into some places and you have adults in the same waiting room with kids, like scary, you know, you know, mentally ill adults in the same area. You know, so there's a lot of things that we can change to make people feel safer about things, you know. You know, having social workers have an office at school. A lot of times these kids are in cubicles or the teachers mm-hmm. don't have enough time to see enough people. You know, they're just doing, you know, groups, and some kids need more individual therapies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely, I have um, friends who teach even in, in in New York, and that's one of the things that they're saying is, like, sometimes they have the, the people who are, like, supposed to be providing these kind of services, but they have all kinds of kids thrown in there together, and they said, you know, it's like like you said, how do you make it where if this child sees someone who may have been a gang member and they're afraid of, how are they going sitting in the same room waiting for some services? You know, yeah, uh, it's like, and there isn't any. Um, but, I mean, it's just like, it's a lot of work. Do you ever feel, what makes you feel that you're making the most progress? And what makes you feel the most challenged? Oh, let's see. I feel like I make progress because I think I, I, I initiate the need for progress every time I sit with someone. If I ask them what can you take away, what could be different, you know, and I'm always going, revisiting, look, and consolidating their gains, letting them know where they've grown. I think those are really, really important. One of my biggest challenges is probably insurance providers. Because mm. I don't think, sometimes I think they act as a gatekeeper, but they also act as a way to sort of um, be a barrier to people getting services. No high deductible, how high premiums. Mm-hmm. You know, you well, want to see a therapist. You have a you know two thousand dollar deductible. You can't see a therapist if you don't have any money. You know. Mm-hmm. And with all of this, you know, talk about healthcare. Even how where they're talking about, well, some of them say they should let a market let you pick and choose what you want. Well, where some people would say, well, mental health, I don't need that. You know, if something goes wrong, I'll go back. But but this is like like we're ta- we've been talking about an ongoing need that you might have. Do you hear anything in this whole healthcare debate that gives you hope? Well, I think we have good people on the on the, on uh, who knows what the policies need to be. That's something that I keep my on. You know, a lot of times my friends say you're you're obsessed with this whole healthcare thing. You say, well, it affects my life. I mean, it affects. I mean, I'm in the exchange. I'm a private practitioner. I watch premiums mm-hmm. go up. But I'm glad this is on the air so I get to say it. I did keep my same doctor, so Obama didn't lie about mm-hmm. that. Every <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So I've had the same mm-hmm. doctor. So I'm not being able to go on CNN and say that, but I can say that here. So that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so I think there were some problems with the exchanges, but they can be helped. They can be looked at, and we can look at places like you know private, maybe privatizing Medicaid and make people be able to buy into Medicaid. I mean that might. 
make money. Who, I don't know, but I just think there needs to be some looks at making it at least accessible. You know, if you can just walk into the doctor's office and no one gives you a limit on how many times you can go see a doctor, why should there be a limit on how many times you can go see a therapist? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to make 10 appointments to see your doctor, you could. Nobody's going to say, oh, nope, Michelle, you only get three sessions a year to see your doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just not fair. You should have the same unlimited resources for mental health. Do you think, you know, we've gotten so caught up in, like, measurables, you know, having kids, you know, take test after test. Do you think that sometimes it's, you know, there's nothing that, like you say, you can't say that in three sessions, you know, Johnny's going to be fine. You know, is that like one of the challenges in this whole health care thing, like to sort of to get people, insurance providers to recognize that? Well, you know, I do think that what they've done is they've done a really great job at sort of manualizing and using instruments to pathologize people. I think the DSM have done a really good job at that the diagnostic manual, because I think they've done a good job at figuring out a way to put psychiatrists, not to talk about medical science, it has this space, about putting people in categories and calling them disorders. But it's hard to say someone has a disorder because they've been neglected. <laughs> that sounds like that's like double blame, you know. It's like, no, let's mm-hmm. Their life experience that may have caused them some depressive symptoms or some anxious symptoms, and one of the things you can do is you can teach them how to manage that, and then they'll they'll metabolize. So if you teach someone, um, you know, self rescue skills, they'll eventually no longer have the depression or the anxiety. It'll start to go away because they'll become more automatic. And so I think if you treat people, I tell people all the time, yes, we do the assessment. Yeah, I can give you a diagnosis. But we're going to hang our hat on the diagnosis. I don't know if we're going to be able to be effective. I think we need to work on their symptoms. You know, one thing that I like is, like, I hear you talking about skills uh, uh, to cope with things, uh, things that people can do, you know, what they feel unsafe, what they can do and like that. What I didn't hear, what I haven't heard you say, um, which is like, and what, do you find that sometimes you find people when they get to you, they've gotten into that whole, well, here's a pill for this, here's a pill for that, here's a pill for this, now go talk to John, you know? And do you have to, like, sometimes in helping them find coping mechanisms that then they're able to live healthier? Well, here's my, here's my um, stance. I think, there, I, I think that um, psychopharmacology has its place. I mean, I come, from a, I come from mental health, so we come from a, you know, 20 years of diagnosing in hospitals, and I've done, like, crisis work where I had to hospitalize people and give them a diagnosis myself. So I know the work, and I think that sometimes there are people who do have chemical imbalances where they do need something to help them with serotonin and also something like, you know, dopamine or things of that nature, just body chemistry that makes them more susceptible to depression and anxiety. But I really think that in addition to that, and moreover, that they need to also learn skills. I always say pills and skills. I don't think one works without the other. I think sometimes if you're going to give someone medication because of whatever medical reason you've given them, uh, I think they need to also learn some skills because maybe one day they may be able to put off or not have it. Or, but I, so I think it could be temporary. It could be ancillary. You know, but I do think that you have to work within the context of what the person brings. 
Now, that quote that I read when you got your, your um, about your esteem work, and you were talking about a community in peril, and um, and and that there's so much healing, and the need of so much healing is essential. Not only, I mean, you know, you work with with young people primarily, but there is that need to heal our communities because if our communities aren't aren't better. You're still sending them out there into a war zone. What, you know, in your practice as you're starting to look at families, individuals, communities, how do we start to to do this healing? I mean, how do we, or, or how do we magnify this healing? Because I think the healing is going on. You, it's not getting as much um mileage as the negative things, that there is healing going on. How do we magnify that? How do we get more people on board with healing our communities, not just for today, but for those, our children, our youth who are going to to one day hopefully run all this stuff for us, and we want them to be good, sound, healthy people. How do we start that healing in our communities? First of all, I think that one of the things, you know, obviously um, poverty, jobs, economic development, all those things, those buzzwords that we hear all the time. But in addition to that, I think we also need to think about, you know, this idea of bringing communities back together to kind of figure out, like, how do we get empower people to do what they do? You know, if there's a – like, when I grew up, I grew up in Gale Gardens, it's one of the – oldest housing projects in the city, we could go to the park district and watch a movie after school, and it was free. Or we can play mm-hmm. ping pong ball. We were inside, and we were safe, and there were people there that would watch over us, and they could do our own work. And I can't afford that now. You have to pay to go to the park district. Which I thought, you know, so I think some of those things are, uh, need to be looked at and maybe making more resources available for kids won't be on the streets or having more summer employment and, you know, having more after school that people could afford. You know, kids are watching themselves because what parent is there's one parent and they're working. So just making, I think it's really multifaceted. You know, but I think if there's a group of us that are working really well together, but I think we need to sort of activate the community and activate some of the other partners. Now, do you find, I mean, I heard you talk about your client base is everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you find now that it's opening up, you know, I often tell people part of the reason I do this show is because people want to say, oh, LGBTQ community, they're just over here. Oh, if you want to see somebody, you go and see them. But we know that people are everywhere. If someone comes to you, you don't go, well, are you, you know, Christian, Hindu, black, white, LGBTQ, you know, you come in, are you ready to do the work to, to, to get through this? Is it reciprocal when you show up and, you know, do you find that people want to immediately send you, oh, we're going to send all the queer people to John Sykes? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I, okay, so I'll, just, I'll, I'll give you a long answer. So, okay. So you Oh, you, just so you know, you're the one, you're the first and only radio show I've ever done. And, and that was after a lot of reflection and talking with my mentor about it. Because one of the things I like about my practice is that even though a lot of people know about me, people know that I have these incredible boundaries mm-hmm. about keeping people's uh, narrative safe, not sharing things I might know about them. I could be sitting at a, at a 
at a cocktail reception with one of my clients and it could be in the room. And so that's a conversation we have. Nobody knows that that's my client. There's no way you can get around it. The city is just small. You know, I was at a concert and, a, and, a, and a, one of my kids' parents walked in. You know, so it's really about having really good boundaries, really creating a space where people feel like they can get what they need. And I just think that it's really about sort of the engagement. You know, I always, parents always tell me, you know, um, oh, my son's not going to talk to you. I'm like, okay, just bring him. And I just know mm-hmm. that at some point I will get to them. There's maybe a handful of kids in my 20 years that just didn't want to, just didn't want to do it, and, and they weren't at their threshold of pain. Everybody has a different threshold of pain, you know, and I think that when they reach it, they'll get help or they'll maybe do some things that might get them forced to get help. Well, I think that, that also, I mean, I think that you're really authentic, you know. I mean, it's like what you see is what you get. I mean, you know, there's nothing about you. Like, I mean, I have read about you when the moment I met you, you were the person I envisioned you being, and you were just like so authentic, so so genuine. And especially people see that, you know. And like you said, they, they might recognize that this might not be the way for them, but you're not saying, well, today we're going to do this, and then next week I'm going to uh, hit you from here. You know, I mean, it's like this is what we're going to do. And I think the fact that then afterwards you go through, how is this going? You know, what could we have done better? I think that that's really important. And yeah. you know, absolutely. And when people come in, I say, okay, what do you? Because sessions are structured, and so we usually check in and say, okay, how was your week? You know, can you give me a number from one to five about how it was? And I'll just kind of we'll kind of scale it, and then I'll say, okay, what, what was your homework? What were you supposed to work on? We'll kind of talk about that. And then I said, do you have any new topics you want to talk about today? If they do, we'll list those out. We've got to figure out if we can get to all of those. If they say, no, I don't really have anything there, I say, well, can we go with my agenda? And then I'll pull out an intervention that I have that might match whatever they're going through. You know, and so I'll kind of do things that way. And so that's typically how I might, you know, um, run, run a session. And, and get them engaged. So I think each time they come back, they're really thinking about what they have to do the next time they come. It's really, it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take that second break. Um, we're talking to John Sykes here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we will be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with today's guest, John Sykes. He is a relational therapist in the Chicago area. His website is According to Sykes. 
Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, you went from different things, like you said, you went to nonprofit arena and all like that. And it, but it sort of seems like all of these things have worked together to help you be the person that you are, to be at the place that you are now and do the work that you do now. How do you feel that the intersections that have influenced your life have impacted the directions you've taken, and how do you think it's going to impact your future work? Okay, so this is the point where you're trying to move me to tears, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because I cannot tell you that if life doesn't, if you don't use the sort of the tragedies and the triumphs in your life to continue to grow and develop, you know, life is like a schoolroom where we come here to learn needed lessons. And every day I wake up and I say, I want people to see less of my personality and more of what I stand for, and that's about equality and healing and growth. And I think that's one of the things I try to feel like I'm adding value to the world. You know, this is what I want. Like some people may want to make millions of dollars, but I want to make uh, add value to the world. I want people to, you know, be able to do whatever they feel like they can do. And um, I, and I like being a part of that. And I like modeling that. You know, you know, people I work with know I take really good care of myself. I tell people that I see on Saturdays. That's the, you know, I take a lot of time off. So if you want to see me on a Saturday, that might be tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I take mm-hmm. time, you know, I travel. You know, I travel quite a bit. So I just think that when you have the opportunity for your life to sort of evolve into doing exactly what you want to do, you know, I think I believe in the law of attraction to be really honest with you. I remember saying I wanted a job as a community, uh, outpatient community mental health um, director walking distance from my house, and it happened. And it was the last job I had for eight years. And it really gave me an opportunity to be a part of the community. And remember, a lot of uh, mental health agencies, the community is like three or 400 people, so they see their therapists at school. Their kids go to the same schools, you know. So I think... Therapy, people kind of look at it as this sort of austere king or this person who, you know, um, knows all about them or knows better than them. I say I'm, they're not my clients because they're not, I'm not an expert on them, and they're not patients because they're not ill. So I just see them as me entering into a relationship with another person. I obviously have some skills they don't have, and they're coming to me for a resource. So I don't really see them as, me, you know, like, you know, being... And we're all a client somewhere, right? You know, so I think, you know, if you treat people, knowing that there's a hierarchy in the room and knowing that there's an authorization in the room, but you still treat people like human beings. And so I appreciate the, the opportunity to be a part of someone's life and to help to make discoveries. So that's the way I see it. Do you find, I mean, because I've, I've worked with, with young people, you know, and later on, sometimes you'll run across one and you just sort of look back and you sort of smile at them or they'll say something um, and it helps you measure what you consider success in your life. Do you find that sometimes just when you, when you look back over the years and you see, well, I planted this seed and I planted that seed and now you look back at the at what what has grown up? Do you see that differently? You know, I don't go. I don't go someplace 
you know, it was, it was so interesting. I did the, um, they did a, a networking lunch on trauma work with LGBT at Howard Brown, a couple of a big agency here in Chicago. And a woman walked up to me after the conference and said, some words you said to me many years ago at a conference stuck with me. You really kind of went to that. You took me to task on things that I was doing in a program and making sure. You were really wonderful about it. But I just remember that, and I always wanted to let you know that that fits with me. And I always get a note from a, a, a former client or someone, I, a person who I helped mentor or, you know, you saw the, the support I had at the 16 Awards at mm-hmm. the last minute of the Saturday afternoon. So, mm-hmm. you know, people were just erupting in sort of support, and I really appreciate that. It sometimes feels overwhelming because I feel like I like to be a, a safe space. And sometimes if you're too out there, you know, it kind of, uh, I don't want to never overshadow my practice. Mm-hmm. Well, but you know, okay, but that esteem award, I'll tell you, um, you often what we do, we don't do it about the awards and things. But I know I, I often tell Phil, you know, like I remember I, I, I often would call and say, what can I do for you? And he was calling me. I was driving back, and he said, you know, we want to give you this an award for all that. And I was just like, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, but. How did that feel? I mean, you know, even though you don't want it to, you know you what, want what you're really, doing. How did you feel? You know what I really felt? I felt like, and this is going to be a laugh, but I felt like, boy, do we need to do a fundraiser for Phil? <laughs> <laughs> we do. That's we do. And so, you know, I know that I asked another friend who is, and I think it feels like you're listening. Uh, I think I heard that he's going to probably do something where he put up uh, some kind of link where people could donate, and I would really uh, encourage people to do that. And I just thought that was such an awesome thing that he does with his own resources every year. And mm-hmm. uh, and he's pretty, he seems to be pretty under the radar in all the stuff that he does as well. So we have people out there doing Very much, very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those people who wants to lift up other people, you know, and you go right. like, hey, man, we need to lift you up, you know. Right. I, where you come from, you know. We so used to be each other, turning each other down because we're all like, uh, you know, weird to be out there fighting each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah there, there's, something, there's something really nice about that award and that, like you said, and here, your friends, I've seen that often too. The people who he who he's given the award, their people, their friends and family show up, and that's just like that was what was really nice about you. Here were were your people who who if you would ask any of them, they would tell you, oh yeah, we knew John was all that, you know. But we wanted to be here to to give you that that acknowledgement, to clap and shout for you, and I know that had to make you feel like you know. That big smile, beautiful smile you had. No, yeah, it was really, really hard. It was just so humbling. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, I just think, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny. I have to kind of, um, you know, my friends see me all the time. They sometimes they look at me and say, do you see yourself? It's just, you know, I just don't want to be this person who, you know, love is not puffed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I try. That would be all puffed up and, you know, you know, a devoted servant. It's, it's kindness. Mm-hmm. It's tender compassion. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's those things. You know, I try to continue to you do that. They force me to take accolades. 
<laughs> Every <laughs> now would, and then. It's I okay. I'd rather get on the plane. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, every now and then, hey, you know, take accolades and get on the plane. You know. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, every every year at the Esteem Awards, I meet wonderful people who I come to really like, want to talk to, get to know, to stay in touch with. Um, you are now on that list. <laughs> um, yeah, you, this has been so much fun. I was thinking, I was like, wow, this is fun. <laughs> That's why I tell people say it's easy. We're just going to talk. <laughs> so I want to ask you yeah. one other thing that you said. You said respect, love, and inclusion are our birthrights, and many people don't recognize that. And it's so important that you said that because part of healing a community is to recognize that respect, love, and inclusion are our birthrights. Yes, human rights is our birthright. Health is our birthright. So we act like when we're getting treated equally, that someone's doing us a favor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's almost funny, Michelle. It's like, no, these are our birthrights. We have to, you know, people walk around, certain communities walk around puffed up, and they feel like they're entitled about what they want and what they deserve. And I think we have to work on that, too, at the LGBT communities and communities of color and other vulnerable groups, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're getting coming to the end of our, our time together. Um, your website. Yes. Okay. And I know that you're pretty busy. So um, if someone wants to follow up on uh, reaching out to you uh, for services on hopefully more, more lecturing positions and things to keep you going, um, and keep you busy, out of trouble, or a trip somewhere for some fun. What's the best way for people? What is that website, and what is the best way to reach you? Well, the best way to probably reach me and get a quick response is through the website, and that's www.accordingtopsykes.com. And it goes directly to me, and I can, uh, you can just send me an inquiry, and I'll get right back to you. Um, between now and the end of September might be a good time because I'm going to be taking new clients as I prepare for the fall, and some clients are going back to school, college, so I might have availability. So if you can send me an email um, to www.accordingtopsych.com or john at accordingtopsych.com, either way will be fine. Mm-hmm. And um, the website just has a few more details in terms of what you would need to know prior to your first appointment and what you might need to know about the, the practice. And will you be lecturing at University of Chicago this fall? I am. I started teaching there. I teach the class that I created. It's called uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapies with uh, Vulnerable Populations. And it really looks at vulnerable populations like women and immigrants and refugees and people who have been impacted by trauma and teaching people interventions on how to help them. And I also um, teach a class on treatment of adolescents, and I'm going to be creating a new class in the winter with a colleague on how to do case presentations. So new, new and exciting work is coming along, and obviously I'm doing some consultation with some other agencies, so that's been really exciting mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, our times are sending a lot of people to you who are in vulnerable groups. Um, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me today. 
I'm sure we'll be in, in conversation between now and the next STEAM Awards. And um, I look forward to hanging out with you next time I'm in Chicago. I know, right? So I think we just give me an advance notice and we'll go do something fun. Okay, that's great. Well, John, thank plot, you again. And we can plot to save the world. You're welcome. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, saving the world, according to John and Michelle. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, John. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Okay. Well, good night. Have a good evening. Have fun. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Collections by Michelle Brown. I want to thank you, my listening audience, for joining me on this journey. You can listen to this show each week by following Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio iTunes, Stitchers, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the podcast so you never miss an episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you and good Night.